0: Amen. Welcome, Blueprint. How are you guys doing today? And for those of you guys are online, we are again on not in person we're online as you all can tell um again and um our prayer is that next week that we will become back in person both here at the stone here at the old fourth war location as well as the stone mountain location next week and so um we will be communicating throughout the week so please 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 remain diligent in that and um but that is our plan and our prayers for us to go we are Currently in the series, and if you're, you know, if you weren't here last week or you didn't check us out online, I am in a brace. I am in i th- I'm in my three-week journey, you know, in my third week started on December the 20th. I got one more week in the brace, and then next week I can take off the brace. Um, but then I got another about four or five, six-month journey until I get to full recovery. Last week it was a little shorter, but I went to the doctor. He he set me straight, right? And so, um it is what it is now. That is a colloquial for I'm hurt and I'm sad because of it. But we are going to push forward. But I'm also in my UGA um, sweatshirt for a couple of reasons. One, I'm kind of celebrating my daughter. She is, um, you know, it's a good time. Enjoying my daughter is at the UGA honors, and she is going back today, so I'm driving her back um, back to college today, and they, they start school tomorrow. And then also, um, I'm you know, I do a father daughter time, and we're going to go to the UGA women's basketball game. So I was just like, let me dress, you know, to the attire. Um, One of the pastors asked me today, he was just like, why are you sporting UGA? And, you know, he was just like, and then he made a statement, is because you invested money in there? And I was just like, yes, it is. And, And what's true is what we see in the scriptures is where your money lies, your heart also follows. And I recognize that. I, I'm a West Coast kid. I'm a West Coast boy. I grew up on the West Coast, so I'm more of a Pac-10 type of guy. But now, being a part of the UGA, I'm starting to become a UGA fan. So tomorrow, I know that there's a national championship game for those of you. And, you know, and so this is who I'm cheering for, UGA. UGA. And, um, and so this is kind of where we are. But if, enough about that. Let's jump into the Word of God. If you have your Bibles, open up with me to Luke. Luke. Chapter 5, we are continuing in our series, Storytelling. Storytelling. The parables, the poems, the prayers, right? The the idea of story, storytelling, that we sit at the feet of the storyteller, the greatest story of all time, so that we can learn his ways, we can understand his principles um, in there. And these short stories are here for us to drive a particular point home um, for us, last week we looked at the parable of the sower, the parable of the sower, and that specific point was kind to addressing a problem that you and I have, and that problem that, that we often have is that we fail to follow through what, what, in what we resolve to do. So that's what we talked about last week, that we make these resolutions, we make these, we resolve that we come and we sit under God's Word, or we have our time with the Lord, we, our time of worship, and then we go leaving that time saying, this time we're going to do this, or we're going to do that. And then it seems like it lasts for a moment, but it never um, actually, um, we, we actually don't follow through on it. Um, last week in there, one of the call to actions were, were three things— I said, um, let's do three things to kind of cultivate that the parable of the sower um, kind of pushed us to. One was that we would confess daily, that we would confess daily, that the posture of our hearts, that we would come to the Lord and say, God, like, this is where we are, that we talked about journaling every day, confessing the state of our heart and asking God, where are we, right? Our telling God where we are. We also talked about cultivating daily, that as we sit within our word that we would just simply cultivate, that we would allow the word of God to nourish them. And the Bible tells us that we do not live off of bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So God's word cannot be contained, and it's in, it's in our hearts. It's, in the, it's on the scripture. The Holy Spirit loves to, to yield it as his sword. It is the word of God that is, that is able to sharpen us Um, and to cultivate. So we ought to cultivate the Scripture daily. And out of that cultivation of Scriptures, I challenge us to write down one thing that we pulled out from the Scripture. And that one thing, the last thing, was to commit daily, right? So as we confess daily our heart, we cultivate daily, then we wanted to commit daily, to commit to doing that one thing that God put on your heart that day, that day, and to do it that day, to resolve to do that one thing that day that you asked. As I, you know, did that this week, um, you know, there were, it was very interesting for me because, you know, it was good. I wrote down, I got my journal, and I wrote down every single day, and I simply asked the question that God asked Adam when sin entered into the world. He says, where are you? And, and as I sat down and asked, and I just started writing out those things, and so I would confess to God, God, I'm hurt, I'm lonely, I'm sad, right? I'm angry. And I would then explain why, what those things, and I would just kind of write kind of in stream of consciousness where I am confessing to God, and then I would take it to God's Word and cultivate it. And what was interesting was is that I, was, I did really well on confessing daily, and I did well on even cultivating, getting into His Word daily. But one of the things that I struggled with this, this week was committing daily, committing to do that one thing. Because even though it was rich time and good time, as I would leave as I would leave, um, oftentimes I would, I would lose focus. What's interesting about that is that um, I'm, I, I'm normally in the habit of spending time with the Lord. I'm normally in the habit of, of um, confessing where I am and understanding, God, I'm, I'm hurt, I'm lonely, I'm sad, using the words to kind of confess where I am, telling the truth about what's going on inside. But I struggled with the daily discipline of actually applying God's word. Hebrews chapter five, 11 through 14 says, the difference between someone who's mature and someone who's immature is not just simply about how much we know, but it's about what what we apply. How do we apply what we know? And I think oftentimes, you know, in these first couple of parables, Jesus is kind of getting at that point because for many of us, we think that maturity is simply about Um, attaining or getting up to an intellectual state or becoming better at Bible trivia or being able to kind of reach a place where we can always give a defense or give an answer to someone. But I think there's one thing that we see is that it's not just about um, being able to understand God's Word, but it's about being able to apply God's Word. And some of us are entering into this new year and we're desiring, we're reading the Bible in um, in a year, we're reading the Gospels, we're, reading, we're, take, we're taking on different things that we're trying to do. But it's over this first week, I know for me and probably for you, one of the things that you probably come to grips with, which we're going to address today, is that old habits, old habits are hard to break. And adopting new ones is even harder. Old habits are hard to break, but adopting new ones is even harder. Why is this the case? One of the things that we recognize, and if you just simply do a Google search, you know, about why is it so hard for people to change, one of the things that you would recognize and that you would see is that we are all hardwired to resist change that there's something in us that we're hardwired to resist the change and when change comes that it just brings about kind of fear in us and we respond kind of in fear. So today we're going to basically ask and ask the answer the question is how does Jesus speak to our resistance to change? How does Jesus speak to our resistance to change. We're looking at Matt, um, Luke chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 33 to 39 and looking at the parable of the old and the new. Verse 33 says this. Then they said to him, John's disciples fast often and says prayers, and those of the Pharisees do the same. But yours eat and drink. Jesus said to them, You... Can't make the wedding, you can't make the wedding guests fast while the groom is with them, can you? But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. Verse 36, and he also told them a parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and puts it on an old garment otherwise, not only will he tear the new, but also the piece from the new garment will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and it will spill and the skins will be ruined. No new wine is put into fresh wine skins. Verse 39, and no one after drinking old wine once new because he says the old is better. The old is better. Old, ha- old habits are hard to break and adopting new ones is even harder. The reason why is that we are all hardwired to resist change. See, part of it is if you just look at physiologically, it's part of our brain. Um, scientists and neurologists basically have said the amygdala is a part of our brain, is, the, is kind of the parental side of our brain. And, and whenever it interprets change, it interprets change as a threat. It's a threat that we have and it releases kind of these hormones of fear of, you know, and that fear produces a response to us that we are common with a fight, flight or freeze. And so this is why oftentimes when change comes that we interpret change as a threat and then our initial and immediate reaction for many of us is fight, flight or freeze. We want to fight back. We want to run away or we just kind of stand and hope it just passes so oftentimes what we see is that, that, that our body is actually protecting us from change, that we're hardwired in that way. And this is the reason why we see people oftentimes are saying that they are resistant to change, or you might have heard the statement that I don't like change, or I'm not accustomed to change, or I love patterns or routines. I love to kind of get into my schedule or get into my flow. You know, and we just, we have that, and so, one of the things that the reasons why we often say that we are, we are resistant to change is because we're hardwired. But the other reason why is that we don't understand the core components, the core components of change. And so really what I want to do throughout this and what I see out the text is looking at some of the three core components that we're going to pull from the text and pull from this parable that um, keep us on what, what we call the habit cycle right? The habit cycle, what, what causes us to do things over and over and over again. And so um, on here, what you see is a, a little graph, and this graph is a circular graph that we have, and it has three core components of the habit cycle. The first one is context. The, there's context cues that kind of trigger us into in this. The, the second one are, is the common comebacks, right? These common comebacks are the things that we end up doing, right, because of the triggers or the cues that cause us to do them. And then out of those um, common comebacks, there is a known or a certain consequence, right? We know that um, there are certain things that we do, and because we do them, that we're going to get certain results or certain actions. And what we do is that we continue in this cycle, and it creates a, a level of consistency, and that's how we develop habits, because it brings in consistency, and that consistency um, Let's us know that. But when we understand these core components of these habits, these all can be broken down. These these they they, they can be broken down to our triggers, our actions. And the results. And this is really where I believe Jesus is kind of coming in, and I think he comes in with the heart of, um, of understanding, trying to explain to the people, to the religious leaders, to the Pharisees um, at this party that we're going to get into, you know, because what he knows is something that, you know, and, it, and it's kind of captured in the old statement. The old statement is, better is the devil you know than the, be- than the devil you don't, right? And that's really one of the things that that statement is basically saying is that I understand the hardship of where I am now and I'd rather remain in this hardship than the unknown hardship of change. This is the very cry out of the Israelites. Even the Israelites were out and they were like crying out for the Lord to save them out of of Egypt. When God saves them, they were just like, I don't like where we're going. I don't know. I'm not in control. I'd rather go back to slavery. I'd rather go back to the bondage that I was in. I'd rather go back there because I understood the challenges there, and right here, I don't. And they were resistant to change. They were in their fight, flight, or freeze in there. And so what Jesus does in this passage, and in this parable, he basically does three things. One, he acknowledges some of the context cues and the triggers that come. He also talks about, he addresses the common comebacks, the common responses and actions that these cues do for us who are um, religious. And then the third one is that Jesus assures them of some future consequences. So let's jump into it. Um, The first thing is is that Jesus acknowledges the context cues, right? In verse 33, what we see here is that he says this, then they said to him, John's disciples fast often and says prayers, and those of the Pharisees do the same, but yours eat and drink. The first thing that he does is that he compares and contrasts what John's disciples are doing, or I mean, I'm sorry, what the Pharisees and John's disciples are doing. And what Jesus' disciples are doing. And he pits these two together. And when we say the they in the passage, is that they got to get a little context, a little background to understand what's going on. We are picking up in Levi's banquet. That if you were to look a little bit further in the Bible, what you would see is that Jesus went and he saves Levi. And then he calls Levi to follow him. And as Levi follows him, basically what happens is that Levi throws a banquet. And this banquet is made up of all types of tax collectors and all types of sinners. Right? And and Jesus is already being questioned about his association with his tax collectors and with sinners. And so, early on, there's people who are in this party, and they're already, and they, and earlier in the passage, basically says that he's associated, Jesus associates with sinners. He associates with tax collectors, right? And so, these Pharisees in the Bible talks about, these experts of the law, these religious men are going to compare and contrast Um, what's going on. Why? Because what they were ultimately saying it was is that Jesus and his disciples didn't bear the marks of the other religious people, the other people who were pious, the other people. And what they do is a masterful thing because if you remember, it was John the Baptist who was the one who, uh, who who baptized Jesus right? And so not only does he use the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the people that they knew that they had beef with God, but he also used the people who were supposed to be on God's team. He was on the same side of Jesus. He says, they don't even look like them. You see, because pious people, they bear the marks of fasting, of praying, And it says, in these people, not only does Jesus and his people hang out with tax collectors and sinners, they also don't fast and they don't pray. There's a problem with that, right? You see, because we recognize it's the idea of fasting and praying is the idea of bearing the mark of repentance. Ultimately, what they're saying is that Jesus and his disciples are misaligned with supposedly God's will. They're misaligned. You see, what Jesus is doing right now is that they're recognizing that the status quo is being challenged. Jesus and his disciples are doing things, are changing the way they do things. He's not doing things the same way. You see, and right now what we're seeing is that there's a group of people who are resistant. These experts of the law and these these, um. Pharisees, they're being they're resistant to the change. And in this context, what that happens is that they're already triggered. They're already triggered. And they're triggered to fight. They went into fight mode. They're hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. They don't even observe the fasting. They don't even they don't we don't even see them praying right? So here we are in this emotionally charged area that's triggering this fear between the people that are in in, in between the religious leaders. And they're in this fight mode. They're, They're fighting back. And so in verse 34, Jesus now responds. In verse 34, Jesus says to them, you can't make the wedding guest fast while the groom is with them, can you? You see, like I've already said, the context of what's going on right now is that they're in a banquet. Jesus stresses right, right here that not only in, that he's in a banquet, he changes the nature of the banquet right? He changes the nature of the banquet. And so in this story, we see a couple of core components that Jesus introduces to us in this story to let us know. And these core components are these, right? First, that there is in a banquet, that we see that there's people that are coming into the banquet. But Jesus turns this banquet, and he does a masterful job, because while they recognize that they're in the context of a banquet, he changes it. This, okay, you're seeing a banquet, but what's really going on is that there's a wedding feast. There's a wedding. Taking place. And so he takes this idea and he turns this banquet into a wedding. And in here, he recognizes that Jesus is the bridegroom coming to claim his bride, Israel. Israel is the bride. And what he says is, is that his disciples, basically, they are the wedding party. Verse 35, it says, but the time will come when the groom will be taken away And then they will fast in those days. Jesus puts himself in as the groom, coming to get his bride. And what's happening is that he says that in this context, that his groomsmen, his bridesmaids, his disciples are doing the appropriate thing. What do you mean by that? The point of this first illustration is this, is that context matters. Context matters. You see, the context of those who are following Jesus is different from those who are just there at the banquet. Some people, the, his disciples, are, are there just to get free food. They're there just to, to eat. There's like there's a party. Let's go. Matthew's throwing something. Let's get over there. Right? But right here, what we see is that there's a, a different approach from Jesus' disciples. They see themselves, they see this banquet as a wedding celebration. They're here celebrating the groom. And while we're in the midst of celebrating the groom, the appropriate thing that you do at weddings is you don't grieve, you celebrate. You celebrate the groom. You celebrate what's going on. And it's not appropriate to mourn and to do things, marks of repentance in the place of celebration. And so what Jesus is doing is that he turns this banquet into a celebration. And so what we see right here is that he, he basically says, but he says, however, however, there will be a day for the wedding party to grieve. And right here, Jesus points the first, his first iteration to pointing to his pending death. There will be a time, but this is not the time. You're looking for something, but something is changing, right? And so he says that it's all about context and and the way we see context changes the cues and it triggers something in us. And so he first addresses that. The second thing that he does is that Jesus addresses the common comebacks, right? So whether you're seeing the wedding party or whether you're seeing this banquet as a banquet or as a wedding celebration, He basically goes in and he gives us another example in verse 36. He says, he also told them a parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and puts it in an old garment. Otherwise, not only will he tear the new, but he also, but also the piece of the new garment will not match the old, right? And so the first thing that he compares and contrasts is that certain people are fasting and mourning, and some people are eating and celebrating, right? So he compares in contrast. Now he takes a new garment and an old garment. And this parable stresses that there is a radical break for, with the former religious way of doing things. And what he is doing is introducing a new way of doing things. He is asking, he, there's, there's new patterns, there's new practices, there's new habits. That we are going to be now embracing. You see, what Jesus was saying to them right here in this um, analogy, he says, listen, I did not come to patch up the old system, right? I did not come to, to patch up Judaism, but I came to bring a new way of doing things. And this is why when you see over and over again, Jesus says, I am, he was preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That he's preaching a new order. He's preaching some kingdom values that we have. He's not here just to patch up our religious systems, our religious way of doing things. right? What we are seeing right now is that they were looking for something to line up with the status quo. They were looking that they had their core kind of system. And what, what can they do to add on to that core system but you see what Jesus was saying with this idea of new garment and old he was saying that, he was basically saying that these messages these systems these ways of doing things are diametrically opposed right in terms of how the message and the teaching they're contrast to one another basically what he's saying is that they're incompatible they're incompatible well, why do you say that? Because if you look at the scriptures, basically one of the things that you would see is that the Pharisees and even some of the disciples of John's, what, what is happening? Well, they're teaching and they're practicing a religion of ritual, right, of habits and ritual. They were practicing a religion of externals, a practicing a religion based upon keeping the law. They were practicing um, a religion of works that aimed at fostering self-righteousness. Of self-righteousness, but Jesus, his messages was diametrically opposed. While one was teaching a ritual, a religion of ritual, Jesus teaching and his practice was all about was based upon relationship. While well, one was teaching religion of rituals, one was teaching it based on relationship, relationship with God, relationship with others, relationships with your neighbors. While one was focusing on the externals, Jesus focused on the internals. He was focusing in on the heart change that we have. While one was focusing on keeping the law, Jesus was focusing on abiding in grace, not the law. While one was a religion worked aimed at fostering up self-righteousness, Jesus was all about faith. Faith in him, faith in Jesus, and that his righteousness was being given given to us. You see, you have these two things that Jesus is basically saying that they're incompatible with one another, that the old patch and the new can't go with one another. See, he did not come to synchronize his message, but Christ preached the kingdom. And our response to Christ's kingdom is what he says in Matthew chapter four, he says, as he was preaching the kingdom, he says, repent because the kingdom of heaven is that is near. And that idea of repent basically he's saying is that we need to change the way we see God's kingdom. You see many of us we get saved by grace but we try to keep it by the law. We think that we usher in God's kingdom through a religious system that the Pharisees and the Sadducees do. And what we end up doing, knowingly or unknowingly, is that we end up looking for outward conformity instead of what Jesus is looking for, inward obedience. Inward obedience, he's looking for heart change, not just us to externally change. This is the very thing that we see Jesus doing in the Sermon on the Mount where he gathered all of his disciples and he says, listen, when it comes to God's kingdom, the blessed are those who are poor in spirit. The blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are sober. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst as he's going in. But then he goes on after he says, that is a people. That's my people, that they're, they're marked by repentance. They've changed the way they see things. And he says, because then he goes and he says, because they say, who's the they? It's the Pharisees. It's the Sadducees. It's the religious leaders. They say, don't commit murder. I say, don't even hate a brother. Don't even think little of your brother. They say, don't commit adultery. I say, if you even lust after a woman, you've committed adultery. They say, and for eye. I say, turn the other cheek, right? And so in each one of these, he starts off and he says, listen, there's a certain way that you're doing, it, but the way that you have done it to merit salvation, but he says, I'm coming at it from a different way, and the two systems are incompatible with one another. And so what we see here is that in these illustrations, there's a group of people who are fasting and mourning, and there's a group of people who are eating and celebrating. There's a group of people who recognizes that there's an old patch and a new patch, that they're, they're incompatible with one another. But and then what we see in the third one is that Jesus he begins to assure of the future consequences. In verse 37 and 38, he gives us a couple of more comparisons that we have, right? In verse 37, it says this, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and it will spill And the skins will be ruined. No new wine is put into fresh wine skins, right? And so what Jesus Jesus is doing right now is that after he has already compared two of the four things that do not mix, that are not compatible, the feasting and fasting, a new patch in an old garment, now he brings home a final two. And he's illustrating the same point from a different vantage point. While he says the other one was that they're incompatible, he basically says here that the old is insufficient. The old system is insufficient, right? In verses 37 and 38, we see the second illustration adds the fact that there is a new way of doing things and that Jesus is coming to bring about this new way of doing things. And this new way of doing things is, about, is, is inherently about expanding and potentially growing the quality of this new way of doing things. Verse, what we see, and it says, when we see, again, the next one that he talks about is the new wine in old wineskins. New wine and old wine wineskins. We don't kind of walk around in wineskins, I don't think, um, if we still do. I mean, I don't know for sure, but I'm assuming that we don't have like wineskins in, in the way that they have um, wineskins. But wineskins are bags. Um, In that time, wine skins are bags made of skin or leather. They were used um, for storing wine in the New Testament times. And as the new wine fermented, basically there was this fermenting process, it would expand. And in that that expansion, it would stretch the new wine skin. So you would put the new wine into the new wine skin. And as the new wine was in the new wine skin, then it began the fermenting process, that wine would begin to ferment and it would stretch the bag out or stretch the, yeah, the leather bag or skin bag out, right? So the thought here was putting new, unfermented wine into old wine skins, which has already been stretched out. The result of the new fermentation process that you put into the, the new wine in the old wineskin, skin, it was already stretched out, that it would stretch it out even further. And in the stretching out even further in the fermenting process, it would create holes in the bags. In the bag, or eventually make the bag burst, right? And so Jesus says, "You don't put new wine into old wine skins, right? You don't try to put a new revelation into the old system. That in the old system, in this expansion, is the old system is insufficient to to it. And so he says, and he says, but listen, but there's an issue because." new wine and old wine. The new wine represents the person and work of Jesus, the person, the work, and the ways of Jesus. This is the new wine, right? The new wine represents what Jesus has been teaching and what he's been preaching. The new wine could not be confined in the old religion of Judaism, but it involved this coming, this consummation of the kingdom of God. You see, his point here is that his way and the old way that the Jewish followers, that, he, that they promoted was unmixable. It was incongruent. It was incompatible. It was insufficient there. You see, God was, and I believe God is, preparing for a more robust and more diverse harvest. You see, it was in this time that Jesus and the Jews was this, they wanted to keep it within, that if you are coming to the, to, as our Messiah, there needs to be, there's confines. And Jesus is like, not only am I Lord of the Jews, but I'm Lord of the harvest, right? And it's in this harvest that he says that I'm, I'm, I'm preparing for a more robust and a more diverse harvest. You see, the gospel in Christianity has to expand to the whole world. Judaism simply could not contain what Jesus Was trying to to bring and since it had become over the centuries judaism had become so so rigid and they accumulated so much tradition and that so many people started depending upon their tradition instead of the person in which the traditions pointed them to but what i love about this is that jesus in his understanding his understanding he says i get it you guys i get it i understand that even after Jesus explains that you're hardwired to change and why it's so hard for us, right, to break old habits. And it's even harder for us to um, adopt new ones. Even still, after explaining all this, and this is what's interesting, is that only Luke, out of all the Synoptic Gospels, asks this verse 39. Because the point, in verse 39 he says this, No one. It says, and no one. So after explaining, after giving four examples, after giving four examples, he says, no one, after drinking old wine, wants new. They still want the old stuff. They still want the old stuff. He says, I get it. I've told you, I'm explaining to you that they're incompatible. I'm telling you that it's insufficient. But I know, guess what? You still want the old stuff. You still want the old stuff because he says this, and you've determined in your mind, the old is better. The old is better. You see, Jesus recognizes and he reminds us that we are all resistant to change. He reminds us and and he lets us know that old habits are hard to break, but adopting new ones is even harder. You see, and if we don't understand these core components that it takes to change and breaking these old habits, and if, we don't, and if we underestimate the concentration and the implementation that it takes of sitting at the feet of Jesus and allowing the Spirit of God to help us to adopt new ones, what we will do is that we will confuse the religious way of doing things from Jesus' way of doing things. But, and we would also believe that the old way of doing things is better. And we'll fall back to our own routines and our own traditions that we we have. And so what i to do is here, I want to end with this. I want, in the same way that last week, I want to give us four ways. I want to give us four ways just to, as a call to action, right, of how we can break or adopt new habits. Number one is start with the question where, where, start with where. Where are you, right? We talked about journaling, and I just really, I'm a strong emphasis of just, just basically saying, where are you? Where are you? Where is the posture of your heart? Where is the problem that we're trying to solve? Where, where does that lie? Where do we want to be? Right, and I think it's important for us to start with the where. Where are we and where do we want to be? The second thing that we do, and just simply write that down in the journal and just keep doing what we did last week. Write down where you are with your heart, write down kind of where you are in your circumstances, and just ask the question, where am I? And and then the second question is, where do I wanna be? What's the preferred future that you have? The second question is that you gotta wrestle with the why. Wrestle with the why. Why do we wanna get there? After we say where we wanna be, the question becomes is why do we wanna get there? You see, this right here speaks to the importance of the change. If we remain the same, would anything change? Right? And if we wait, does it even matter? Right? Ultimately, what we're saying is that if we continue to do things the same well, the same way, will it even matter? And I think oftentimes the why is where we get our anger, is where we get our passion, is where we get our motivation because change is hard. And remember, passion is a willingness to endure the pain for something that's greater than the pain. And the only way that are gonna be willing to endure the pain that change is going to bring is if we think there's a why. There's a better why on the other side of that pain. One of my um, good friends basically just had a baby and they had their second baby. And after having their second baby, it was just like, do you want a third baby? Just immediately after, it was like, yeah, they want a third baby. And the question is, is why? Why would a woman want to continually put themselves through the pain of childbirth? Because there's something greater than the pain. And they, and they live with passion. Change is going to bring pain. But it's on what's more important On the other side of that pain. So we got to wrestle with the why. The third thing is that we got to clarify the what. Clarify the what. We got to be clear on what we're changing. Be clear. Don't leave it, um, you know, open. No, be clear on what it is. Identify the problem. Clarify the problem so that you can understand what you're trying to change. And then the last one is simply this, is apply the how. Apply the how, right? And when you're applying the how, I want you to do something, and think about it in three ways. Think about what is the easy, obvious, and strategic way to do it. If it's about sharing your faith, don't go and say, hey, my how is tomorrow, I'm going to go out and I'm going to knock on 20 doors because I need to share my faith, right? That's just... That's a big jump if you've never shared your faith before. But what's the easy, obvious, and strategic step? The first step may just simply be the how. May, hey, I'm just going to go and I'm going to pray for some of my unbelieving friends. And the next week, I'm going to just simply call them and ask them, how can I pray specifically? And then the next week, I'm just going to call them and I'm going to say, hey, can you get lunch with me? And then the next week, I'm going to share the faith. It's just like, what are the simple steps to getting to where you're trying to get to? instead of trying to do it all, because as we're trying to develop new habits, and breaking old habits is hard, but adopting new ones is even harder. And this is why Jesus says, no one after drinking old wine wants new," because he says the old wine is better. Blueprint, what am I saying? Basically, I'm saying is that breaking old habits is hard. Adopting new, new ones is even harder because we are all hardwired to resist change. But we know that the statement is true. If you always do what you've always done, you will always get what you've always gotten. If you always do what you've always done, you will always get what you've always gotten. Your lives, our lives are perfectly set up to get what we are currently getting. But if you wanna see different results, we must adopt new habits and new practices. If we want to see Christ exalted in our lives, we must adopt Christ-exalting habits. And that's the bottom line. It's not going to come by osmosis. It's not going to come by us even wanting it more. It's going to come with adopting Christ-exalting habits. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the grace that you've given us in Christ Jesus. Thank you for the love, thank you for the mercy, Lord, that God, you're not just the God of second chances, but you're God of third and fourth and fifth and sixth, and even to you, what you told, um, Peter, that 70 times 7, Lord, that you are a God of infinite chances, that your grace is sufficient, Lord. So I pray and thank you, Father, for the grace, and Lord, that even though we will start and fail and start again and fail again and start again, Father, that you are gracious to pick us back up. You are gracious to put the the wind behind our sails, Lord, and giving us the opportunity, Lord, to start again, to try again. Father, I pray, Lord, for those that are even frustrated, that are even discouraged after only one week of, of this new year. Lord, that you would pick them back up, that you would put wind in their sails, that you would encourage them, Father. And I pray, Lord, that our, our new habits and our new practices may be aimed heavenwardly. Lord, that we may seek to exalt you and have a Christ-exalting life that, and that we would adopt the habits, Father, and be transformed in a way that Only you know how. So, Father, we pray for a life of surrender to you. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for this day. And, Lord, we'll do our best to give you all the praise, all the honor, and all the glory. Father, it's in Jesus' wonderful and precious name that we pray. Amen.